0: From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland Edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition, episode 253 for the week of February 13, 2014. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Tom Bell. I'm joined by our Disneyland team, Mary Jo Malatawilli and Michael Bowling. And in this segment, Michael celebrates the Winter Olympics. Michael? Thank you, Tom. Um, with the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia, underway, this is a good time to take a look back at the 1960 Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley, California, and the role that Walt Disney had in making those games so successful, and the lasting impact. Of Walt Disney on the Olympics. During my research, I drew a lot of this information from the Walt Disney Family Museum, um, Jim Corkus, who's a Disney historian, and the Friends of Walt Disney Facebook page um, that's headed up by Disney historian Leo Holzer. Um, the tale of the 1960 Winter Olympics, which was held in Squaw Valley, California, seems like a fairy tale. It was initiated as a publicity stunt by Alexander Cushing, the Harvard-educated owner and only resident of the struggling ski resort. The Squaw Valley bid shocked the world by beating out some of the great ski resorts of Europe in, in International Olympic Committee voting in 1955. Now, Cushing campaigned vigorously, stressing to the International Olympic Committee delegates that the Olympic Games belong to the world and shouldn't automatically be rewarded to a European resort. He had his bid written in French, English, and Spanish and commissioned a 3,000-pound model of Squaw Valley to show the delegates. The bid interested the IOC. Squaw Valley certainly had splendid qualities. Most obviously the 450 inches of annual snowfall, and areas of mountain terrain so difficult that they had not yet been successfully skied by anyone. Ultimately, Cushing's intense personal lobbying helped persuade the IOC to choose Squaw Valley by a vote of 32-30, to beating out Innsbruck, Austria. But officials decided that it would be a conflict of interest for Cushing, the Squaw Valley resort owner, to be the promoter of the games, so he was barred from direct involvement. There was only one problem. Squaw Valley was hardly prepared to host an international sporting event. That sounds a little familiar. It does. <laughs> Ouch. At the time, it boasted only one chairlift, two tow ropes, and a 50-room lodge. Upon hearing about the California bid, IOC President Avery Brundage told Cushing, the USOC has obviously taken leave of their senses. Hmm. Cushing turned the resort size into an advantage, presenting it as a blank slate upon which a world-class facility could be custom-built to suit Olympic needs. Now the newly formed California Olympic Commission had five short years to build a fully functional Olympic-ready facility in the mountains near Lake Tahoe. So undeveloped was the location that at the close of the 1956 Winter Games, Squaw Valley had no local government to accept the Olympic flag from the mayor of the previous host. An IOC member from California had to accept the flag on Squaw Valley's behalf. Bringing the Winter Games to California meant enlisting the assistance of Hollywood. In 1958, Organizing Committee President Prentice Hale first approached Walt Disney, asking for his help. Prentice Hale was a very big personality in San Francisco. He was chairman of Carter, Holly Hale, and the Broadway department stores, Ron Miller said. Prentice Hale visited the Disney studio in Burbank and after joining Walt for lunch, asked him to become chairman of the pageantry committee for the upcoming games. This would involve programming the opening and closing ceremonies, the victory ceremonies for each event, and the Olympic torch relay. Disney agreed, saying later, I didn't know then what I was getting into. Now, Walt was no stranger to the skiing world. Mount Disney in the Sierras was named in his honor after he helped finance the Sugar Bowl Ski Resort in 1939. Walt had become interested in skiing when he made the live-action feature Third Man on the Mountain in Switzerland in 1958 and had inspired the addition of the Matterhorn attraction to Disneyland in 1959. So in 1960, Walt's interest in creating a ski resort attraction resulted in him commissioning economics research associates to survey the ski resort potentials at San Gorgonio Mountain in the San Bernardino Range and also at Mineral King Valley near Sequoia National Park. Being very thorough, he later ordered surveys of Aspen, Colorado and Mammoth Mountain in California. Now, at the Olympic Games, Walt met Bavarian ski expert Willie Schaeffler, who was later hired by Walt to help scout a location for the Disney Ski Resort, and Schaeffler confirmed Walt's choice of Mineral King. We'll have a link in our show notes to my um, blog and segment on Walt Disney and the Mineral King project. For Squaw Valley, Walt Disney recruited from within his own organization to build a committee that would undertake the Olympic pageantry. Ron Miller, assistant director at the studio and Walt's son-in-law, was named pageantry coordinator. Another assistant director, Joseph McEvity, was named Olympic Torch Relay director, and manager Edsel Curry became director of special projects. Walt Disney Productions' vice president, Card Walker, was named director of publicity. Walt also called upon a few friends. Art Linkletter, television star and host of Disneyland's live opening special, became the vice president in charge of entertainment. And Western Airlines president Terrell Drinkwater was named vice chairman in charge of budget. Filling the role of pageant director was Tommy Walker. He was once a band leader at the University of Southern California and then director of customer relations at Disneyland. Walker's role was to gain support for the event, and he conferred in Salt Lake City with the president of the Music Educators National Conference about recruiting young musicians for the festivities and sought the help of Japan's largest fireworks manufacturer in developing the ceremony's pyrotechnics. Supervising the musical portion of the production were choral director Dr. Charles Hurt from the University of Southern California and band director Clarence Sawhill. And after meeting with the Music Educators National Conference in 1959, the committee was granted permission to work with the California and Nevada Music Educators Association to recruit musicians and singers from public high schools in those states. The response was overwhelming. When applications were distributed in the fall of 1959, more than 30 bands and 70 choral groups applied to be part of the Olympic ceremonies. After listening to hours of mailed-in auditions, Hurt and his committee selected 18 bands and 37 choruses from the two states. A musical program was chosen for the event, and in December 1959, Hurt and Sawhill gathered at UCLA to record a demo of the choral and instrumental numbers to distribute to participating schools. Groups practiced first individually and then in one of four regional rehearsals held in Reno, San Francisco, Fresno, and Los Angeles. Then the selected students had to raise money back home to fund their trip to Squaw Valley. 3,680 students, 1,322 band members, and 2,358 choir members participated. Youth participation was critical to the success of the Games. Acting as official flag raisers, messengers, and crowd control during the event were 125 Explorer Scouts under the leadership of Scoutmaster William King. Walt was quoted as saying, I have always said that the spirit of American youth cannot be daunted, and I think this was dramatically proven by their unselfish and wholehearted effort before and during the eighth Olympic Winter Games. And this effort extended to the all-important torch relay, which brought the Olympic flame by foot more than 600 miles from the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, that was site of the 1932 Olympic Summer Games to Squaw Valley. More than 700 high school runners from the California Interscholastic Federation took place, joined by a number of former Olympic champions. The athletes were each assigned 1-mile sections of the route where they practiced by running with 8-pound shot puts. Now meanwhile, the effort to build an olympics-worthy resort out of the wilderness was underway. It is estimated that 2,000 visitors a day arrived in the summer of 1959 to tour the construction site, and Walt made several visits to coordinate the entertainment efforts. The Disney company leased a home in Squaw Valley to house the people working on the Olympics as well as the celebrity guests. Walt leased an adjoining home for his family, and Ron Miller worked on the project on and off for about six months and lived in Squaw Valley with his wife Diane and her three small children at the time, Chris, Joanna, and Tammy, for two months in January and February. Walt and Lily came and went, and Diane's sister and brother-in-law, Sharon and Bob Brown, also visited. Now, these Olympics were after Walt's own heart. They were full of innovations and firsts. Now, previous Olympics had lodged guests and athletes in local hotels and homes, which really surprised me when I found that out. But the remote location of Squaw Valley required the construction of custom-built housing for participants, making it the very first Olympic village, consisting of four dormitories. Artificial um, ice was used for the first time in Olympic history for the skating events, Waste heat from the refrigeration plant was used to heat buildings, melt snow from roofs, and provide hot water. Other innovations included new timekeeping equipment capable of measuring time to the hundredth of a second. IBM supplied 15 technicians and two RAMIC computers to tabulate results and output data in English and French. For the first time, television rights were sold for the games, with CBS buying exclusive rights for $50,000. The network eventually broadcast 31 hours of coverage during the games, and when officials needed to consult tape of an event to determine whether a skier had missed a slalom gate, it inspired the concept of instant replay. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was a lot of firsts in, the, in this that, that we still use today. And the Disney team did everything it could to make the games memorable for athletes, spectators, and TV audiences. Now, the look of the games was heavily influenced by Disney artist, designer, and Imagineer John Hench, who was named Decor Decorator. At Walt's suggestion, inspired by the ancient Greek custom of commemorating Olympic champions with marble sculptures, Hench designed 30 16-foot snow-looking statues for placement along the Avenue of Athletes and in other significant locations throughout Squaw Valley. To learn about snow-sculpting techniques, Hench visited the Dartmouth College Winter Carnival and Ice Festival in February of 1959, as well as a similar event in Quebec. He then designed the statues, which were then created by floats Incorporated of Pasadena. Nine of the statues were female, four skiers, three figure skaters, and two speed skaters. Amongst the 21 male statues were nine skiers, seven hockey players, three speed skaters, and two figure skaters. Two larger 24-foot statues, one male and one female, were created to flank the Tower of Nations. The tower, another hench design, stood 79 feet tall and 20 feet wide. Suspended upon the metal grid which composed the tower's frames were the Olympic rings as well as 30 aluminum crests, each 5 by 6, denoting the participating nations. The tower marked the staging area where the closing and opening ceremonies were held, as well as the medal ceremonies for each competition. This was another innovation for the Games, as victory ceremonies had not always previously been held for public viewing. Now, around the area occupied by the Tower of Nations were 30 aluminum flagpoles, one for the 30 participating nations. The effort to build the Squaw Valley facilities was an expensive one, so sponsorships took on an importance previously unknown in Olympic history. To help offset the tens of millions of dollars in construction costs, corporations, cities, and individuals were approached to sponsor individual flagpoles and snow sculptures. Sponsors' names were engraved on the items, and they were allowed to claim them after the games had ended. For $2,000, one could purchase one of the snow statues. Palm Springs, Pasadena, Burbank, and Inglewood were among the cities that agreed to do so. Today, some of the flagpoles can be found in locations, and I bet you all know where one is. At the Walt Disney Studios Commissary in Burbank. Oh. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sitting right outside there. Um, and the Walt Disney Elementary School in Marceline, Missouri, and at the first tee of the La Quinta Country Club in La Quinta, California. You can see the plaque at the studio, but you have to walk on the grass in order Mm -hmm. to read it. So, which I did when I was there. Um, Disney also helped funded a symphonic carillon which rang out 3 times a day and could be heard throughout the valley installed by a Los Angeles electronic engineer the 161 bell carillon and 61 note vibracord harp used 24 speakers and was provided to the Olympic Committee without cost Now, at one point, Olympic officials complained about the costs for some of Disney's elaborate plans. But he silenced those complaints when he declared, either we're going to do it right or Disney will pull out. Wow. And that sounds like him, too. Yeah, it it? does. (laughs) Um, One last hench contribution to the Olympic legacy was the torch. While torches had been used in previous games, Hench completely redesigned the version used in 1960 to make it easier to carry and stay lit. Subsequent games have adapted their torches to local cultural traditions, but their overall forms can be traced back to Hench's design. The 1960 torch is on display at the Walt Disney Family Museum at the Presidio of San Francisco, along with a pennant, poster, and 1960 Olympic pins. So, see, pin trading goes all the way back to the 1960 Olympics. Yet, all did not go smoothly in the run-up to the Games. Walt had originally announced plans for the torch to be flown from Olympia, Greece, by jet airliner to Los Angeles, but the Greek Olympic Committee did not receive a request to ignite the flame at Olympia until January 1960 and refused to do so for logistical reasons. A last minute shuffle in the plans meant a return to the ritual followed during the 1952 Winter Games in Oslo, where the torch was ignited at the chalet of Norwegian skiing pioneer Sondre Nordheim. Also uncooperative were officials in Melbourne, Australia, site of a recent Olympics, to whom Disney technicians wrote for a formula that could fuel the torch throughout the Games. The Australians refused to divulge their secrets. <laughs> So Disney staffers had to concoct their own fuel mixture. Even the bird community caused trouble. Squaw (laughs) Valley was the first Winter Olympics to feature a release of doves at the opening ceremony, but it was worried that doves would linger in the valley and freeze to death. So homing pigeons were recruited to play the role of doves of peace, (laughs) since they would know to leave the valley and return home after they were released. This troubled the fellow in charge of the ice rink, though, who was wary of releasing thousands of nervous birds over his pristine ice. So the schedule of events was shuffled so that the ceremonial cannons would fire only after the pigeons had been released and were heading for home. I guess they didn't want to scare the um, poop out of the pigeons with those cannons. Um, only more- so much a Zamboni can do. Yeah, King. <laughs> really. <laughs> um... More complications came when it was decided to use the original Olympic anthem that had been written for the first modern games in Athens in 1896. The Disney musical department attempted to obtain a score from Olympic headquarters in Switzerland to no avail. I'm always ama- it's amazing to hear how, how uncooperative yeah. all these countries were because all you hear about now is the Olympic spirit and of cooperation. Eventually, Disney was able to track down a copy in Japan, but it was in Japanese, and they had to decipher it as best they could. Hench's giant snow statues encountered trouble on the way from Pasadena. A tarp on one of the diesel trucks transporting them came loose, and its exhaust covered the white statues with soot. So Bob Henry, executive vice president of Floats Incorporated, who had been tasked to build and deliver the statues, was forced to find a way to wash them as quickly as possible. After delivery, 100-mile-an-hour winds at the Olympic site blew one of the statues over. The press reported that Henry soon left for New York so as to get as far away from the statues as possible. So while Disney's Olympic role began as the show producer, it quickly grew beyond the scope of providing entertainment. The problem was that Hale was a retailer, Ron Miller said. He was the president of a retail company, and he brought in two people who were also retailers. So, as we were getting closer and closer to the Olympics, it became very obvious that they didn't know anything about operations. They didn't know anything about parking. They didn't know anything about credentials. So, they kept leaning on Walt to take over the various segments of the operation. Walt called on a few more key people from Disneyland and the Disney organization to help in those areas, men like Bob Matheson, Bob Allen, Dick Nunes, Tommy Walker, Miller's friend, Bach McEvity, and others took more and more um, roles in the um, operation of the Olympics. We gradually took over the whole operation of the place, Miller said. Finally, opening day for the Games drew near... California's racing pigeon organization visited to make trial runs with their doves of peace. The day before the ceremony, the combined bands had their first group rehearsal. Four army cannons firing four-inch shells were brought in and aimed at surrounding mountains to prevent avalanches. Yet it was a torrential rain the week before that threatened to wipe out the packed snow parking lots that had been so carefully created for visitors. The Olympic torch, which had departed... Morgadal, Norway, the cradle of winter sports on January 31st, was carried above the North Pole by an SAS DC-7 to Los Angeles. Passed at Los Angeles International Airport to Olympic shot-put champion Perry O'Brien, it was taken via helicopter to Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, where it began its journey to Squaw Valley by foot in the pouring rain. Over a period of 19 days, it traversed a route scouted personally by McEvity past small towns that greeted it with celebrations and festivities along the way. On February 18, 1960, Walt Disney and his staff awoke and were greeted by a blizzard. With the ceremony and coast-to-coast television coverage scheduled to begin at 10 a.m., the whiteout conditions presented several problems. Snow on the roads prevented people from making the perilous drive to Squaw Valley and hindered the network crews and announcers from reaching their locations. Ten inches of snow fell that morning. CBS host Walter Cronkite appeared to have been broadcasting from the Arctic Wastes. (laughs) Many of the high school musicians hadn't dressed properly for the conditions and stood freezing to their instruments during dress rehearsal. Their tongues were freezing to their horns and they could not see the conductor through the snow. The pigeon wranglers insisted that they couldn't release their birds in such weather, and Vice President Richard Nixon, assigned to proclaim the opening of the Games, was forced to drive in from Reno as his helicopter couldn't operate under the conditions. No one knew if the Vice President would make it on time. Someone had to decide what to do. Now, the alternative to an outdoors ceremony was a much smaller indoor ceremony, which the TV crews favored. But Dr. Charles Hurt, the choral director, objected to having to leave out so many of the young musicians who had worked so hard to be part of the festivities. Art Linklater later later reported that Walt remained unfazed throughout. Disney merely said that they would go on and it would hopefully clear up. Walt even enlisted Linkletter into service as a television host, despite the fact that he was not meant to be there as a broadcaster. But although the ceremony was postponed 15 minutes to allow more spectators to arrive on the snowbound roads, where bumper-to-bumper traffic extended for 12 miles outside of town, they couldn't stall forever. Finally, with everyone gathered and ready to go, the skies cleared. To everyone's astonishment, the snow ended, sunshine broke through, and the opening ceremonies of the Eighth Winter Olympics commenced. The festivities began with a sustained drumroll and the raising of the 30 national flags as the United States Marine Band played the Parade of the Olympians. The 740 athletes then entered the arena with each national delegation heralded by a salvo of fireworks, This was advertised as the first-ever use of daytime fireworks, a Disney event that continues in the theme parks today. After the athletes were seated, Prentice Hale, president of the Olympic Organizing Committee, delivered a welcome. Squaw Valley marked the first Olympics of the Space Race era, and Hale's speech acknowledged that nationalist tensions that had marked the preparation for the Games you can return home as the world's best equipped ambassadors of unity and peace. Before we pay so much attention to conquering outer space, we should devote ourselves to conquering inner space, the distance between nations. Avery Brundage, president of the IOC, then introduced Vice President Nixon, who declared the Games open. Nixon had driven 46 miles through the snow from Reno to deliver a 15 word address. <laughs> The Mast Band and Chorus joined the Marine Band in playing the newly orchestrated Olympic hymn, the first time the 1896 piece had been presented at a Winter Olympics. The 2,000 pigeons were released, and once they were clear, there was an eight-round cannon salute, one salvo for each of the previous Winter Olympic Games. A newly composed piece, These Things Shall Be, was then performed by the Mast Bands and Chorus. Once planned for delivery by helicopter, the Olympic torch made the last 30 miles of its route via cross-country skier. It arrived on site with Olympic champion Andrea Mead Champion, who appeared with the flame atop the peak of Little Papoose and blazed down the slopes accompanied by an honor guard of eight skiers to deliver the torch to Olympic speed skater Kenneth Henry. As the masked bands played the piece Conquest, Henry lit the ceremonial torch, officially beginning the Games. Chimes rang throughout the hills as the Marine Band performed God of Our Fathers. Participants joined in the Olympic prayer, which was narrated by actor Carl Malden. This was a somewhat controversial decision at the time, as such an event had not always been included in previous Olympics. There might have been a bit of Cold War showmanship at play here. And Tommy Walker was quoted as saying that the prayer was optional, but Walt felt that prayer represents one of the freedoms of America and that we should definitely have it. After the prayer, American figure skater Carol Heiss recited the Olympic oath on behalf of all the athletes, the first female Olympian to ever do so. And the assembled bands performed a new orchestration of the Star Spangled Banner. The ceremony ended appropriately with a bang as the athletes paraded out. 30,000 balloons were released and shells were fired that exploded with bursts of flags from each nation, which drifted back to Earth via parachutes. Five minutes after the end of the ceremony, the snow began to fall once more. So that was Disney weather. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> So whilst the 6,500 spectators fell short of projections due to the weather and traffic, the snow delivered, the show delivered as promised. Mm. But even with all the rave reviews for The Miracle of Squaw Valley, as it was being called, Walt still had more surprises planned. The Squaw Valley Olympics were the first to be scheduled with live entertainment with the athletes in mind. And when Walt first announced his plans, he proclaimed that nothing is more important than creating lasting goodwill amongst our visitors, and we shall do everything we can to make their stay a happy one. Again, he delivered. Entertainment Vice President Art Linkletter brought in a slew of his Hollywood friends every evening, resulting in appearances by Bing Crosby, Roy Rogers, Red Skelton, and Jack Benny. Actress Marlena Dietrich posed for pictures with the German hockey team. I'm sure they enjoyed that. (laughs) And the media was well tended to thanks to official press hostess Jane Mansfield. The Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences delivered films for the athletes, which were presented along with free refreshments nightly in the enclosed Olympia Theater. A standout favorite was actor Danny Kaye, who managed to lead a number of international delegations in a chorus of Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Hmm. Press reports from the time described Kay performing rollicking musical numbers in a dozen languages, working Korean, Japanese, and Russian participants into his act. Decades later, many of those in attendance remembered having been in tears over Kay's antics. One memorable evening, Walt brought up the entire Golden Horseshoe Review from Disneyland to present to the Olympians. Wally Bogue, Betty Taylor, Gene Sheldon, Henry Calvin, Don Novus, and three stuntmen all performed for the Olympians, and the stage saloon brawl at the end of the evening was so raucous that the media reported a frightened security officer had rushed to the phone to request help. Ron Miller said, you know, I think the athletes really enjoyed every evening we had because we had such a diversification of talent. Walt had one last idea for entertaining the participants, who due to their own busy busy schedules rarely got to see the medal ceremonies as they took place. So every evening while emceeing that night's entertainment lineup, Art Linkletter would introduce the new champions who had won medals that day. They would then have a drawing, and the winner getting a free phone call home, which was a rather remarkable prize back in those days. So one evening, the winner was said to be so excited that he could barely speak, and it was only when they got through to his hometown operator that he remembered his family didn't own a telephone. (laughs) So a former athlete who had a short professional football career, Ron Miller, said it was very rewarding to contribute to such a great event. I marveled at the athleticism of all the skiers and Diane and I watched the Russian USA Russian hockey game, which is just one of the most stimulating things I've ever seen. People standing up, shouting, screaming, and we won, you know, it was the spirit of the whole thing. Team USA would go on to become the first miracle hockey team, winning the gold medal after playing Czechoslovakia in the finals. Hmm. The victory reportedly received a little assistance when the Soviet coach visited Team USA's locker room before the third period of the deciding game and had the Americans breathe from a tank of oxygen before returning to the ice. The 1960 Games included 15 alpine and ski jumping events, 8 speed skiing events, and 3 figure skating events. It was the first year for women's speed skating and the men's biathlon. After 10 days, 665 athletes from 30 nations had competed in 27 events, and it was time to return home. On February 28th, 20,000 spectators filled the stands of Blythe Memorial Arena to witness the closing ceremonies. Flag bearers surrounded the rostrum as the national anthems of Greece, the United States, and Austria were played. IOC President Avery Brundage declared the games (laughs) closed, and the Olympic torch was extinguished. Thousands of balloons were released to end the ceremony. Walt Disney's Olympics, the largest winter games held to that point, received rave reviews. The once skeptical IOC chair would go on to say they were the greatest games ever staged. (laughs) Army Archard, in Variety, called Disney's opening ceremony the greatest show on Earth. And a reporter for the Los Angeles Times proclaimed that, It is my conviction that you'll never see anything of that kind so well done in your lifetime. Los Angeles Times reporter Braven Dyer wrote, The opening ceremony was the most remarkable thing I ever saw. No matter how much credit you give Walt Disney and his organization, it isn't nearly enough. Even the Russians were impressed. One of the heads of their delegation approached an Olympic security chief and asked what chemicals had been used to control the weather during the opening ceremony. Hmm. When we left, Ron Miller said, We were told and we heard that it was the greatest Olympics up until that time. Of course, there have been a lot greater ones since, but what we accomplished was pretty fantastic. After the Olympics, the Tahoe area boomed, and more Americans took up skiing and other winter sports. I don't know that there was one particular highlight, Miller said, of his 1960 Olympic experience. I will say, and I still feel it, after working really hard for 12, 13, 14, 15 days, just going solid. After closing ceremonies, of course, everybody went to the bar and we all celebrated. We went home, went to bed, and I woke up the next morning and walked into the area, and there wasn't anybody there. I couldn't believe it, from witnessing 12 or 13 days of just wonderful spectators and great athletes. It was such an exciting period of time, the life that existed there. Then all of a sudden, I wake up that one morning, and it was like a ghost town. It was really quite depressing. But he closed with a funny anecdote recalling a return visit to Squaw Valley with Diane more than a dozen years ago and finding evidence of something Disney had introduced to Squaw Valley that was still there. Pigeons. We released (laughs) all these peace pigeons and some of them never left, (laughs) Miller said. (laughs) The 1960 Winter Olympics would influence the look and feel of the games up to the current Olympics. Disney's efforts set new pageantry standards for all future Olympics. Many of Disney's team would contribute to future Olympics, most notably the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. The events of Squaw Valley would also affect Walt, It marked the first time he had met the world outside of Disneyland and began the outreach efforts he would continue in 1964 at the New York World's Fair. It also sparked a concerted effort to build his own winter sports resort at Mineral King, a project he would pursue for the rest of his life. But at the time, many simply wondered how Walt had managed to make things work out so perfectly. Was it divine intervention? In Disney's own press materials, they claimed that if it was a miracle, it was a well-planned miracle. But perhaps Walt said it best. According to Art Linkletter, after the improbably perfect opening ceremony, Walt explained, It's just that if you live right, things happen the way they're supposed to. Nice. And go USA. Yay. (laughs) Thank you, Michael. That is going to do it for this segment of The Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And, of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.